murder, betrayal, lust, intrigue, greed, deception, adultery, and villainy of every kind. Uh, that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Um, now, lest you think that it's like, you know, we're not talking about like network TV or Hollywood. In fact, we're talking about English church history. So if you are sensitive to sordid tales, uh, you might want to cover your ears pretty much through the, the entire course of the message because that's pretty much what it amounts to. Uh, George has asked me to talk about this because in a, a couple of weeks he's going to be starting a series of lectures on the Westminster uh, Catechism. And uh, he wanted me to give you a little background about where that comes from and why we would even be talking about it or needing to know about it or caring about it in the least. And in order to do that, we're going to go back to the beginning of the English Reformation, which is in the early 1500s. Now, this was um, the age worldwide, or at least with European history, what they call the age of discovery or the age of conquest, which means enslaving other nations and pirating other people's ships and trade. Uh, it was the age of reformation, as it's called, and, and, and enlightenment, where we had the growth of theology and the arts and the sciences. And it was also, perhaps more than anything else, the age of war, uh, in which there was state-sanctioned religious and political killing uh, that was done with such abandon and vigor and delight in the task that it makes the Taliban look like they're from the University of California, Berkeley, and they're all pacifists. Uh, it was uh, a murderous time in which no one was safe anywhere uh, for, for any length of time. Now, to understand English church history in particular, and this really is true of, of all of Europe, we have to understand some fundamental mindsets that were, that were uh, prevalent in the day, ways that virtually everyone believed. I don't think blue works. The first idea is this. One nation, one church. No such thing as denominations was not only considered not desirable, it was considered terrible, heretical, something that you might put someone to death uh, for even advocating. One nation, one church. Uh, going along with this was another concept, which was that citizenship in a country, having the rights, like we have as Americans, for example, under, under the Constitution, the rights that we have as citizens of this country that other people don't have, citizenship equaled membership or was dependent on membership in the one church. If you, if you uh, did something to cause yourself to lose membership in this one church, it generally meant you also lost your citizenship. And along with that meant you generally lost your property, you generally lost the right to stay in the country, and sometimes you might just lose the right to be alive, period. It, going along with the concept of one nation, one church, is the fact that 
all preaching and all preachers were licensed by the state. In other words, we could not, you could not, we could not be doing in uh, Reformation Europe without great risk what we are doing right now. I'm not sanctioned by the state. I didn't get permission from the United States of America or the Texas government or anyone other than you to stand here and preach, and neither did George. But in this time, all preaching and all preachers were licensed, and they were all part of the one church. And if you weren't part of the one church and you started preaching, God help you, because you were probably going to end up burned at the stake or uh, at the bottom of a river. Along with one nation, one church, one set of preachers, one citizenship, goes also one kind of worship. Every church in a nation would worship in exactly the same way, the way that was sanctioned by the state and the church. There was not going to be any uh, choice in the matter, in fact. One way of worship. That's the first primary concept that you have to, to get into your mind that's very foreign to our way of thinking in order to understand history and why people did the things they did at this time. The second one is this. Religion equals politics and vice versa. There was no separation of religion and politics. No mental separation, no factual separation. These things, every action, every political action was inherently religious and every religious action was inherently political. You'll see what I'm talking about as we go on, but this entire thing was interrelated. Now, of course, obviously, that goes back to the one nation, one church, the politics and religion being intertwined, but it's even deeper than that. It's almost a philosophy that, 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 that people had. Let's just talk about Rome and the dominance of Rome at the time of the Reformation. Uh, the, the kings of Europe were dependent on the Pope for legitimacy. He had to, in essence, approve them as monarchs. And in fact, there were cases in the history of Europe where uh, he would excommunicate a monarch, and in doing so, he would actually excommunicate the entire country, uh, which meant that you could not go to heaven under Romish uh, theology, and the purpose of that was generally to cause the nobleman to kill the monarch and put somebody else in there who would do what the Pope wanted. Monarchs were dependent on the, the papacy or the Pope for legitimacy, but the Pope was dependent on the monarchs of Europe for two things, money and military force. The Pope did not have an army. He couldn't, he couldn't call on the priests to go out and you know, take care of uh, that guy that was making trouble over there. It didn't work like that. He was dependent on the monarchs for military force, and the wealth of the Roman Catholic Church was dependent on, on his ability to convince the monarchs to extract that money from their country and give it to him. So it was very much in, uh, interdependent, and, and, it, and it's not only that way under Romish uh, government and, and theology, but also under Protestantism as it develops. The third thing that you learn studying English church history, which is a, a good thing to remember at all times, and that is religious professions, by that I mean a profession of faith, mean 
zero. Absolutely nothing. Everyone had a religious profession of faith of some kind. And some of them had really intense religious professions of faith. But it means nothing. You cannot judge the character of the person as you consider the history of the church by what they say. Partly because of this problem back here. One nation, one church. And if you didn't go along with the church, you lost your citizenship, which meant you lost all your stuff and maybe your life. That makes people say, uh, yeah, I'll go along with that. Absolutely. Where's the oath? I'll take it. I'm a member of the church. No problem. Get baptized. Whatever. Absolutely. Uh, that's one of the problems. But in general, this is something to remember because we will see that, that, that character is, a, is apparently unrelated, uh, in essence, to people's religious professions of faith. So those are, the, those are the three big things to remember as we talk. One nation, one church, religion and politics are intertwined, and religious professions of faith mean nothing. So, I'm going to our next board here. There are three things, three battlegrounds really, in English church history that we're going to hear coming up again and again and again. And I'm going to put them up here and leave them. The first one is the question of authority. Specifically, who has it and how much should they have? The second is the question of worship. How are we going to worship God? According to what rule or standard? And the third, which you may think is strange that I separate them, but it's for a good reason, is the question of doctrine. By that I mean doctrine unrelated to worship and, and authority other things, whether it's justification by faith or uh, pure doctrinal questions. These are the issues that we're going to see come up immediately at the beginning of the English Reformation and, and continue all the way through. Now, the way we're organizing this is just in a chronological order, uh, essentially revolving around the English monarchy, which is giving them more credit uh, than they morally deserve, but it's convenient for our purposes. And we're going to start in the year 1533, which is a very long time ago, but surprisingly people, not surprisingly, people never change, uh, and politicians never change. <laughs> 1533 was the year that Henry VIII, King of England, and eventually a serial monogamist, meaning that he had one wife at a time, but lots of them in a row. This is the year that Henry VIII decided that he did not want to be married to Catherine of Aragon anymore, uh, from whom he wanted an annulment, in spite of the fact that they had a child together. He wanted to be married to his mistress, Anne Boleyn, who he had been consorting with for about six years at this point. Now, uh, in the Roman Catholic system at that time, and, and actually really uh, up to today, you don't get a divorce. You, you, you find a reason to have your marriage declared invalid from the beginning. Uh, and in this case, it was because Catherine had been married to Henry's brother before, and he died, and then she married him. That was the reason he wanted to give to the Pope to get the annulment. Now, if the Pope had given him this annulment all of history would have, would have been different. English history would have been completely different. It might be like Spain today, or Italy. It might still be a Roman Catholic country. We, we might not be here doing this. But Henry wanted to marry Anne Boleyn, 
He didn't want to be married to Catherine of Aragon, and the Pope wouldn't let him do it. And Henry was a very arrogant and powerful person who's really obsessed with his own power, and he said, I'm going to do it anyway. And he got uh, a guy named Thomas Cranmer, uh, who was an uh, Archbishop of Canterbury at the time, to annul his marriage and marry him to Anne Boleyn. And the Pope, who was a very arrogant and powerful man, said, you're not going to do it. And he excommunicated Henry. And Henry said, that's fine. We don't need uh, the Pope of Rome. I'll run the show myself. And in 1534, we had passed the first of something that we're going to hear again and again, a thing called the Acts of Supremacy. They like those... Words of power, the acts of supremacy. Just about every English monarch in this whole time period ends up passing one of these. In this case, it said that from now on, from 1534 on, the king of England and all of his successors would be both the supreme head of state and the supreme head of the English church. And all of the English clergy many of whom were faithful Roman Catholic bishops at this point, and who didn't really want to be not connected with Rome, all of the English clergy were required to swear an oath to that effect, that indeed Pope was no longer the head of the English church, it was King Henry VIII and all of his uh, descendants, and he was in charge of church and state. And some of you may have even seen a movie called A Man for All Seasons about a guy named Sir Thomas More. And the reason that Sir Thomas More was put to death was because he would not swear the acts of supremacy. Now, <laughs> that's not to say that Sir Thomas More, you know, he wanted you to swear a different acts of supremacy, which was that the Pope was the supreme head of the church. So, but that's why Sir Thomas More got put to death. Now, what you need to understand about this is that when we say this was the beginning of the English Reformation, there had been no reformation of doctrine. None whatsoever. The only doctrine that had changed was that the Pope was no longer the head of the Church of England, but now it was King Henry VIII. And he appointed, uh, Thomas Cranmer became then essentially the chief religious figure in the church as the Archbishop of Canterbury. And to this day in the Anglican Church, the Archbishop of Canterbury is the top dog uh, in the church. So... We go along for a little while. Uh, we basically have a Catholic Church of England. Uh, Henry gets tired of Anne Boleyn, accuses her of adultery, off with her head. Marries a lady named Jane Seymour. And this Seymour name is, is going to become incredibly important as we continue through the history of the English Church. But all I need to remember now is that he married a lady named Jane Seymour. Now, Rome wasn't going to take this lying down. This is something else we'll see through English history. Rome uh, didn't like the idea of countries peeling off, much less people peeling off. Or, or, so they, they, they were going to take this lying down. So there was a guy named Reginald Pole, and he decided, he, he uh, through the assistance of Rome, attempted to lead a Catholic rebellion to overthrow King Henry VIII. Well, it didn't work. Uh, he escaped the country, but he was made a cardinal in the, in, the, in the Roman church. And he spent the rest of his time going around countries in Europe to France and Italy and Spain and the Holy Roman Empire and Germany and other places, trying to get them 
to declare war on England, and, and, and so that with the idea being that the, all the continents would declare war on England, wipe them out, uh, and Rome would take over again, and everything would be just like it was before Henry VIII uh, wanted to get a different wife. Now, just to give you some idea of what's going on elsewhere in the rest of the world, and, uh, of course, we've got the, the, the Lutheran Reformation pre- uh, proceeding in, in Germany. In France, we have a group called the Huguenots, who are French Protestants, who are attempting to uh, reform doctrine there. And in 1536, which is the same year that, that Cardinal Pohl tried to overthrow Henry VIII, Calvin's Institutes were published. So that gives you any idea at all of the, of the advancement of Protestant doctrine that was in some places in Europe. Very advanced, I mean, the doctrine that we believe today. Advanced Protestant doctrine. But in England, we still had basically Catholicism with Henry as, as Pope. In fact, 1539, they pass out something called the Statute of the Six Articles. And this is what they say. This is in England. It is heresy if you deny any of these things. Transubstantiation, which is that the, uh, in communion, the uh, bread and, and wine actually become the physical body and blood of Jesus Christ. If you deny that, that the laity or the people should only receive uh, communion in one kind, they, they gave them, it's the bread, right, Ed? You get the, uh, in one kind, is it the bread, you don't get the wine, or you get the wine and not the bread? No, no, the bread, not wine. Yeah, you got the bread, and the priests are the only ones who got the wine. If you denied priestly celibacy, which of course Martin Luther was one of the first things he attacked, beginning the German Reformation. If you denied the, what they call the inviolability of the vows of chastity. That means the Roman Catholic Church said if you took a vow of chastity, that was it. Sorry, too bad for you. You've got to stay single the rest of your life. Martin Luther said, at the beginning of the German Reformation, that that was a sinful and wicked vow and then it didn't matter if you'd taken it, you just throw that in the trash and get married because it was wrong and a sinful and wicked vow is not binding. But in England in 1539, we were still going to be binding. Uh, if you denied the necessity of auricular confession, confession to your priest, or the necessity of private masses, any of those things was heresy, and in, in heresy equals death. So... Tough time for Protestants in England. David, yes. at this time, what, what are they calling the church in England? It, that's a good question. It wasn't really called the Anglican church until as late as Elizabeth. So I think it was just the, the, probably the church of England, the way, uh, you know, it's probably what it was called. There was no, they didn't have, the, the Anglican church terminology didn't really rise until later. So it was just the church of England and Henry was in charge. Now, what about people who didn't go along with this, uh, other than being dead? What were they doing and where were they? <laughs> to tell you how serious, how seriously not Protestant the so-called beginning of the English Reformation is, let me, let me throw this out to you. How many of you have heard of William Tyndale? The, 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 that's right, he's the first, first person, the first English Bible translator. Uh, well, he was, he was English, and uh, King Henry VIII put out a death warrant on him for translating the Bible into English. And uh, Tyndale fled the country. 
he went to Holland because a lot of people found refuge. We'll see this over and over again in history. People go to Holland because they were always, I don't know, liberal there. So uh, people, people, you know, people found refuge there. But they weren't quite liberal enough just yet because Henry VIII, actually not after Tyndale flees to Holland, Henry VIII finds out about it. He sends agents, uh, bounty hunters, whatever you want to call them, to Holland to track down Tyndale, whom they catch. They take Tyndale to the authorities in Holland and they say, we've got a death warrant here from the King of England that says this man is a heretic. And they put him in prison in Holland for 18 months and then the authorities in Holland obliged King Henry VIII. They strangled Tyndale to death and then they put him on top of a pile of trash and set it on fire. And that was what they called being burned at the stack as opposed to being burned at the stake. I'm serious. It was actually called being burned at the stack. Uh, He was burned at the stack in 1536. And then, in 1537, King Henry VIII banned Tyndale's English translations from... They were not legal to possess in England. And if you possess uh, things like that in England at this time, it's right here for you. Dead, again. So, kind of tough times for the beginnings of the Reformation uh, in England. There were some Anabaptists uh, who had come from the continent, and uh, they tended to, they, he burned a lot of them. Uh, 1535, there were 25 Dutch Anabaptists that he had a big party and burned all of them, and uh, it was tough times. Well, there was a little bit of intrigue going on, people trying to get more influence, and Protestantism within the Church of England was rising. People were beginning to study the Bible. They put away the Pope. Uh, Cranmer himself was beginning to move away from Catholic doctrine. And there was a guy named Thomas Cromwell in 1540, because Henry had lost his wife. I can't remember if this one got beheaded or died in childbirth or what have you. And Thomas Cromwell was trying to convince Henry to marry a woman named Anne, who was, the, who was a German Protestant. And he... Uh, was convincing him of this because he said, look, if you marry this German Protestant princess, then if we have war with Rome and Spain, Germany will be on our side. Now, it had nothing to do with convincing Henry VIII to adopt Protestant doctrine. You understand how this works? It was just, marry this girl because she's a Protestant, and then Germany will be on our side. This is the way things worked. Uh, he, he did marry her, and then he backed out, and he decided to get another annulment, which he got, and then he did a nasty little trick on Thomas Cromwell. He made Thomas Cromwell the Earl of Essex. That wasn't the nasty little trick. That, was, that made it sound like everything was okay. And then he got another guy, uh, who was the Duke of Norfolk, to accuse Thomas Cromwell of treason. And then he had him imprisoned and executed. So, goodbye Thomas Cromwell. Also during this time, war broke out with Scotland. Scotland's a whole other set of things going on. Uh, Protestantism, again, it was a Catholic church in Scotland. Protestants were having influence. Uh, They were trying to to proselytize and evangelize throughout the country. But this is another feature of, of European history at this time. Even though religion and politics, gone now, religion and politics are completely intertwined, 
That doesn't mean that one Catholic country wouldn't go to war with another Catholic country. They did it all the time, all the time, because there were other issues involved, pieces of land, uh, uh, rights of succession, attempts to influence things, trade, colonies, uh, piracy on the open seas. Everybody was in it for themselves, of course. So Scotland was a... Was a uh, Henry decided he wanted to take Scotland and take Ireland. He took Ireland without any problem. He had trouble with Scotland. So they had about eight years' worth of war with Scotland, uh, even though both countries were, were basically Catholic in doctrine. In Scotland, as I said, there was... Scotland is a whole other tale of, of sordid political intrigue and adultery and, and murder and all kinds of wild things. Uh, but one of, the, one of the interesting stories that ties into a major reformer is the story of George Wishart. George Wishart was a, uh, one of the men who was working with John Knox to evangelize Scotland with Protestant doctrine. Wishart was captured by a man named Cardinal Beaton, who was basically the head ecclesiastical figure in the Scottish Catholic Church. Cardinal Beaton had, had George Wishart tried for heresy and had him put to death. One of the things that the Scottish reformers tried to do, again, religion and politics intertwined, was to get Scottish noblemen on their side because they had armies. They had power, they had land, they had influence in political uh, situations. They could even put pressure on the Scottish king or queen. And there was a group of Protestant uh, nobles, in essence, who took offense that Cardinal Beaton had burned George Wishart to death. And they went to uh, Beaton's castle, which was at St. Andrews, in the middle of the night, and killed him. And it was pretty. It was pretty violent killing. Um, that caused a whole nother set of Scottish nobles to become upset that the first set had killed Cardinal Beaton. So they attacked the castle of St Andrews. Well, who is in the castle at St Andrews at this time? But John Knox, leader of the Scottish Reformation. His side loses. Now you think, well, is it curtains for Knox? For some bizarre reason, and they regretted it. Every day afterwards, I'm sure, they did not kill John Knox. I think they thought they were doing something funny. They sold him into slavery on a French galley. So John Knox became essentially an oarman, a slave, on, on a French ship. But that would definitely come back to haunt them. So Knox is out of the picture. He's a French galley slave. The next year, 1547, Henry VIII dies. Henry died of syphilis and cirrhosis of the liver, which pretty much encapsulates his two great passions in life uh, as, as, to, as to what cost him there. Uh, he did finally have a son. We were talking this morning, George was talking about people who, who, who are obsessed with the idea of children or their, or their heritage. Henry VIII is a classic example of a person who would stoop to anything in order to make sure that he had a male heir. That was his one great passion in life, was to have a male heir to the throne. And he would murder his wives, he would lie, he would cheat, he would do anything to see that he had a male heir. And he finally had a male heir, Edward VI, who was the daughter of Jane Seymour. You remember Jane Seymour? That was the one he married after uh, Anne Boleyn. 
Edward was the son, thank you, of Jane Seymour. That would be too weird, yeah. Uh, that comes later. Uh, that's, that's Charles II, I think. Uh, Edward VI um, was very sickly. He was only 10 years old when he was made king, so he was a minor. And he had tuberculosis already, and he was basically dying for the next several years. Everybody knew he wasn't going to make it. And there was a, at this point, when you know that the king is dying, what happens is everybody who can tries to arrange for themselves or their friend or their influential party to be the successor. It is, all of the noblemen become involved in various escapades and intrigues in an effort to obtain power. Because if you get who you want in as king, he might give you a piece of land over here, he might give you a title over here, he might give you, make you the Lord Admiral, who knows what he'll do. You get rich, you get famous, you get powerful, you get anything you want. As, as Henry VIII lies dying, Edward Seymour, Jane's brother and uncle of the future king, goes to Edward VI and convinces him to sign a document saying that when Henry VIII dies and, and Edward becomes king, Somerset, I'm sorry, Seymour, who is the Duke of Somerset, so they often call him Somerset, signs a document saying that Edward Seymour will become the protector of England. So we have, uh, I guess we're going to have to start with the, this, this whole Seymour family line gets really complicated. So we have Jane and we have a brother... Edward right now, and we have the son of Jane and Henry VIII, who becomes uh, Edward VI. Edward Seymour, brother of Jane, uncle of Edward VI, becomes the protector of England. Now, when you have a, a guy that's 10 years old running the country, and you're the protector of England, what that means is you're the king of England. That's what that means. And that was a pretty nifty deal for him to finagle. Now, this actually works out in the course of God's providence as not so bad. Um, Edward Seymour was a Protestant. And one of the reasons that he wanted to become King of England was to try to push the English church as hard as he could into becoming Protestant. And so... Uh, he gets together with Cranmer, Archbishop Cranmer, you remember, Archbishop of Canterbury, who has by this time become very, very fully orbed Protestant. He's embraced Protestant doctrine, he's read his Bible, he's, he's done all those, uh, the, the good things. He's, in, essence, in essence, he's become converted, is what's happened to Archbishop Cranmer. He's been saved. He's become a Protestant. Uh, and, and, he, and he believes in the truth. And they undertake a series of actions in an attempt to start to reform the Church of England. They put out uh, what's called the Book of Common Prayer, which was a liturgy in the Church of England. And although it would later become a very sore point for Puritans, uh, it was a Protestantizing type of liturgy. He produced um, what was called the 42 Articles a couple of years later, which later got <laughs> reduced to the 39 Articles. And that was essentially a Protestant statement of faith. Now, there were some problems with it, and we're going to get to those. 
But it was essentially, as far as the main doctrines go, justification by faith, very strong statement of predestination, uh, very, very Calvinist, uh, Protestant statement of faith. So, Edward is effectively ruling England. Edward Seymour is effectively ruling England. Archbishop Cranmer is pushing for the Protestantation of the church. But anytime you have a situation like this, there are all kinds of people who decide, you know, I think I'd like to have this job right here. And the guy who decided he wanted to have that job was none other than Edward's brother, Thomas. Thomas Seymour decides he'd like to become... He, and he, Thomas Seymour was the Lord High Admiral of England. So this guy wasn't chopped liver. He wasn't a nobody off the street. I mean, he, had a, he was a, a nobleman. Very high position of power over the entire English uh, Navy, such as it was at that point. Thomas Seymour has a plan. Henry VIII has another daughter. This daughter is named Elizabeth. Thomas attempts to arrange a marriage between himself and Elizabeth, and also attempts to arrange a marriage between Edward VI and a person named Lady Jane Grey, who was at that time, I think, uh, 12 years old. So he wanted Thomas to marry Elizabeth. I, know, I can't remember how old Elizabeth was at this point either. She was, she was not, uh, she was not, uh, oh, she was 16. Elizabeth was 16. This guy's middle-aged, I'm sure. Uh, he wants Edward, who was in 10 or 11, maybe by this point, to marry Lady Jane Grey. Lady Jane Grey was the daughter of uh, a duke, the Duke of Suffolk. It's another region in England. Now, his scheme was, he would arrange these two marriages, and uh, through various uh, intrigues and finaglings, would be able to bump his brother out of the picture, and Thomas would become protector for Edward, and then he would have uh, he would be married to someone who was in the uh, succession for the throne. Because at this point there was Edward VI, there was a person named Mary, and uh, who we'll get to uh, in a bit, and there was Elizabeth. So Elizabeth was in the succession. Thomas could marry her. Edward could marry this person over here. The Duke of Suffolk was his friend. They would run the country. And uh, Duke of Suffolk was also a, a Protestant of sorts. Well, there are people in England who did not take kindly to this plan. And it was discovered, and it was stopped, and uh, Thomas Seymour went to the tower and was uh, executed. So the plan falls through. Thomas is bye-bye. He doesn't marry anybody. Elizabeth is single, as many of you know. Edward doesn't marry anybody. Lady Jane Grey is still over here single. By this time, Thomas's execution, Edward Seymour had really alienated a large number of the not-so-Protestant, or let's just say Catholic, nobles in England, and they said, we've had enough of this, uh, and they arranged some charges on him, had him sent to the tower, and he was executed. Meanwhile, Edward VI is getting sicker all the time. And so there's a lot of turmoil and chaos, and once, those, once Thomas and Edward are out of the way, Edward VI is just a kid, there's no, king, no protector of England, no one running the show, the, the lords 
more or less descend on each other, and there's chaos at that, uh, at that level as they all attempt to obtain influence over the aristocracy. Well, Protestantism was advancing, but it was about to take the biggest hit that it would probably ever take in the history of England. Edward VI dies. Tuberculosis. He was uh, not very old. He was, by that point, maybe, uh, yeah, if, if, if that old. So there's going to be now a little bit of contest for the throne. Elizabeth, we have this other daughter now, Mary. Elizabeth's in the picture, Mary's in the picture, <laughs> and uh, we're going to get Lady Jane Grey in the picture again, several more times. Mary was the one who was chosen for the succession by the Catholic nobles who had, in essence, taken power as Edward VI was dying. But there's always a complication. There's always a but in the English succession. As Edward VI lay dying, he's already dead, we wiped him off the board. As Edward VI lay dying, there was uh, the Duke of Suffolk, his name is Henry Grey. And he's got his daughter, Lady Jane Grey, who's about 16 by this point. In this, after they sent old uh, Tommy to the tower and had him executed, the Duke of Suffolk had Lady Jane Grey marry a guy with a perfect English name, Lord Guildford Dudley. <laughs> <laughs> and Lord Dudley, Lord Dudley and Henry Grey, both of whom were Protestants, had a plan. Because there's always a plan. Edward VI is dying. Lord Dudley goes to Edward VI and has him sign papers saying that the rightful heir to the throne is not Mary and not Elizabeth. Can you guess who? Lady Jane Grey. That's right. So Dudley and Henry Grey produce these papers and proclaim her queen. Only Mary's already been crowned. So now we're going to have a very short civil war. Henry Gray and Lord Dudley knew they couldn't pull this off without some military assistance. So they pick up another guy whose name is Sir Thomas Wyatt. Sir Thomas Wyatt was a regional nobleman and he had a little army because all the noblemen had their own armies so they could, you know, fight with each other and do things like this. This is important, you know. So, I mean, what's life without this? So they march essentially towards... London. And Mary, who of course has her own forces by now with the Catholic nobles, marched towards Sir Thomas. And they have a battle, and Thomas's army is routed and he runs away. He gives up, surrenders, and runs away. So, in a surprising turn of events, Mary takes Henry Grey and Lady Jane Grey and does not kill them puts them in the tower, and leaves them there for about a year. Meanwhile, she's killing lots of other people. Uh, Mary, after she becomes queen and settles this little business, is re-Catholicizing the English church. All of the Protestant bishops are, they're not just thrown out, they're put in prison. Some of them are executed. The, the, the leading Protestant bishops are executed. Uh, Bishop Latimer and Bishop Ridley, who you will often hear is in Fox's Book of Martyrs, you'll hear the famous story that they 
tied them to the stake and were about to light the fire. And uh, I, I think Latimer says to Ridley, uh, be of good cheer, Master Ridley, for we shall light such a fire this day as shall never be put out in all of England's history. And uh, then they're burned. Cranmer, who, who you remember was the Archbishop of Canterbury, is of course immediately imprisoned. And uh, they want him to recant. So they threaten him with death. And he, in fact, recants. He abjures Protestantism, and he accepts Catholicism again. Only he is immediately and violently smitten in his conscience for having done so. And shortly thereafter, he recants his recantation and refuses to recant the recantation of his recantation. <laughs> and they march him out. They, they have this, this uh, enormous ceremony in which very degrading and humiliating ceremony in which they strip him of the, of the position of archbishop, march him out to the stake, and he, uh, he's burned at the stake. And there's a, there's a touching story that he, um, he put his right hand into the flames first, because he said it was his right hand that had offended in signing the recantation. And Cranmer is burned to death. Uh, many of the English Protestants flee, obviously, at this point. Anybody, anybody who can get out of the country gets out of the country. Uh, Knox, who, th this is to tell you they'll regret this, Mary signed a peace pact, as I recall, with, uh, with France, and, and as part of this pact, for reasons that I do not understand and cannot discover, Knox was released from slavery on this French galley. So he immediately comes back you know, to, to, to England and then discovers what's going on and flees to Geneva with most of the other English Protestants. Because Calvin had a very stable environment there. They set up camp in Geneva and they start working on a plan for the English church because they know one day it's going to be over with Mary. They have absolute faith. That, that, that this Mary is not the final uh, part of the story, that English will become Protestant, that they will be able to go back and lead the Reformation and evangelize the, the nations. And they begin working on Bible translations, on, on confessions of faith, on uh, documents. Uh, it's everything you can imagine. They have their own little church that they set up and, uh, in Geneva, an English-speaking church in Geneva. And people from all over England, dissenters and, and persecuted Protestants from England, come to Geneva. It was a very interesting time. Well, Mary, of course, doesn't actually last very long. She lasted about five years. And Bloody Mary, as she was called... Uh, oh, I forgot. I forgot to finish Lady Jane Grey. Sorry. Got to go back. I told you that she put these two in prison. After about a year... Because Mary was kind of an interesting lady, in spite of being bloodthirsty and murderous and liking to kill Protestants. She, had, she was very pious Catholic. Very pious Catholic. And she decided, very, very uh, sincere in her Catholicism, and she decided she was going to grant these two clemency. She's going to let them out of prison. No, no questions asked. You walk, just behave, and everything will be fine. Let them out of prison a year after putting them in prison. Henry Gray... And Lord Dudley proclaimed Lady Jane Grey Queen of England. <laughs> Sir Thomas Wyatt raises an army, marches on London. Mary's army defeats Sir Thomas Wyatt. This time, no mistakes. Beheaded, 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 beheaded. <laughs> Some people, it takes a lot for them to finally learn. So Mary dies. And that leaves in the succession, of course, 
Elizabeth, who is legendary. That's the one they just buried, right? <laughs> <laughs> Make it quite that long. Elizabeth is is a is a of course extremely long reign, uh, considered a quote unquote successful reign, unless you are an English dissenter, in which case it's not so good at all. Elizabeth uh, has a lot of legend behind her, and, and pe- they make movies about her, and she's supposed to be the greatest you know, queen that ever was in England, and what a phenomenal person, and so forth. Well, the, reign, the very long reign of Elizabeth, which lasted, I think, from about 1563 to, I believe, I think I've written down, it was, it was uh, 1603. Her, her reign lasted from 1563 to 1603, when she died and James I was crowned. Uh, her reign is marked by several things. War, almost continuous war with Spain. This was a big deal at that time. The Spanish Armada and uh, all of those stories. The second part of that, and related to the war with Spain, were repeated attempts to overthrow the queen, uh, we'll call it, I guess we can call it rebellion, repeated attempts to overthrow the queen and install in her place uh, someone else. (laughs) Then uh, there was, during this time, the establishment of the Anglican Church. It was, in fact, another half-sister... Uh, who they wanted to install as queen. Uh, it was, it, this is, gets very confusing because we've had Bloody Mary, who was queen and died. Then we have Mary, Queen of Scots, who was the Queen of Scotland. She has her own stories that are outrageous and sordid. Um, and we'll get to those. <laughs> Three big things. War with Spain, rebellion, and the establishment of the Anglican Church. What happens with the establishment of the Anglican Church is that the 39 articles are officially adopted as the doctrine of the English Church. They, they pass another one of these acts of uniformity and supremacy, and everybody has to swear to it, and they adopt the 39 articles. So the Protestant Church now? Yeah, this is the Anglican Church, yes. The pre- unquestionably Protestant except questionably. Now, how would you describe what Elizabeth's coming from? Elizabeth is the consummate uh, diplomat. She, the, the adoption of these articles was, attended, was intended to Protestantize the doctrine of the Church of England, here we are, but to leave alone authority and worship. Worship was to basically remain Catholicized. The authority structure of the church was basically to remain Catholicized except with the great big change that Henry VIII had made. But it was going to be a, they had a hierarchical structure, top down, queen, archbishop of Canterbury, uh, bishops, uh, parish priests, and there was this whole assortment, deacons, archdeacons, and canons, and subcanons, and this huge array of people who had positions within the church who had various kinds of power, but it all came from the top, and it was, if you will, imposed on the the members of the parish. So authority was to remain untouched. Elizabeth was a big fan of Catholic worship, loved it, loved the pageantry, loved the uh, the imagery and the excess, if you will, 
Worship was to remain untouched. So she let him have the doctrine. And the main thing that Elizabeth didn't want is she didn't want fighting. No fighting, no disagreements, no trouble. Everybody keeps quiet. Nobody messes things up. And nobody gets hurt. That's basically what it amounted to. You, you keep the peace and nobody gets hurt. You're a Catholic bishop, you know what? We're going to make you go along with the doctrine, but if you secretly don't believe it, we don't really care. Hey, that's okay. You can still be Catholic inside and, and, and be part of the Church of England because it's, it's all right. You know, because one nation, one church, we're not going to have two churches, you know, but, but she didn't really care that much about doctrine either. The doctrine was more or less to appease the fact that the Protestant movement had grown so large that it couldn't be uh, opposed, and because Mary had been so violent in persecuting Protestants that it had made people essentially adopt Protestantism. I mean, I mean they did not want to, uh, once she was gone, that, that it, and the Protestants all come back, nobody wanted to live under that anymore. It was, it was daily burnings. I mean, you crossed the street wrong, and you're, it was, somebody accused you of being a Protestant. Probably that was it for you. It was a good way to get rid of your enemies. Just accuse them of secret Protestantism, yes. Dude, that, where's the William of Orange, and is Ireland still... What, if, if well, throw you sure, no, William of Orange will come, comes uh, later. He's at, he's, at the, he's at the very... He's the one who puts an end to all of the uh, uh, warring that's going on, because it changes the, the lineage. It's the end of the Stuart uh, monarchy, Tudor and Stuart line. So he's in 1688 or 89. Thank you. So we're, we're still quite a bit uh, ahead of him. Uh, Ireland at this point is, is a part of the kingdom. They, they made an agreement uh, with Henry VIII to, to be part of essentially the, the three kingdoms. Scotland is one of those things... Scots would probably tell you, we were never part of England. And England would tell you, we got you a long time ago, and they'll fight about it forever. So, uh, she wasn't really... Elizabeth was... She was the kind of person who seems to have been more or less pious in certain personal types of devotions. She seems to have been more or less really almost Catholic, quasi-Catholic. Very difficult to tell where she was coming from. Uh, but the setup that she arranged was one where she just didn't want anybody to make trouble. Just go with the plan. Go with the plan. Everybody keeps quiet and everything's fine. But by this point, Protestantism had made tremendous strides and people were beginning to question things. After all, if you could get the 39 articles, if you could get this change right here, this, this in overwhelming Protestantization of doctrine, why stop? Why not continue to push for, on the authority issue and on the worship issue? It was working in Scotland. Knox had, by this point, they had just about, uh, and over the next several years, had just about fully reformed the Church of Scotland to the point where it was a, it was a Presbyterian uh, church. And pretty much the Catholics were out of power. This would, this would go back and forth for a while. But there was fully orbed reformation in Scotland. Fully orbed reformation in Geneva. And uh, uh, things were happening in, in the Netherlands also and in Holland. So why stop here? And especially if you're a real Protestant, because this is where we start seeing stuff come out. What is, what is maybe the essence of religious Protestantism? Not political Protestantism, because there's definitely... That, that exists as we've seen. 
the essence of religious Protestantism is right here. I can't make that out. It's conscience. Conscience and the authority of the Bible. Okay, okay, you, you agree with us on these doctrines, but you know what? We have a problem here, Elizabeth, because the Bible talks about how we worship God. The Bible talks about the way the church of God should be organized and run, and the standards that should be set. And we're happy that this doctrinal change has been made, but our conscience will not allow us to stop there. Now, you might say, why, why didn't they just say, you have your church, we'll have ours? Because we're still at a time where this happens. Dead, right there. I'll get to that in a second. Within the Church of England, there were people who were very hardcore Protestant and who were pushing very hard. And this is where we begin to have some of these words crop up that you'll see in the history books. Dissenter. Nonconformist. A Puritan. This is where, this is really the time, uh, in this time that the word Puritan comes into its own. The Puritan was the person who wanted to purify the Church of England. They wanted to purify the worship and the, and the, the governmental structure and some of the remaining doctrines in the Church of England. Now, Puritans as a whole, the group we call the Puritans, that were within the Church of England, basically accepted the one nation, one church mentality. They were not particularly fighting against that. They agreed with it, in fact. They essentially accepted the idea of citizenship being attached to membership in the church. It was that way in Geneva. They essentially accepted the idea of not having uh, a very broad sense of toleration for opposing views. They accepted all of that. What they rejected were these doctrines which they said were foreign to the word of God and therefore were sinful. Not, not merely wrong, but they were sinful. And you shouldn't agree with them and you shouldn't go along with them. Now, within the Church of England, there was a spectrum. There were people who were uh, moderates to the point where they, could hold, they would hold office in the church and, and they would uh, become... Uh, they, weren't, they wouldn't call themselves priests at this point. They would call themselves pastors. And they would go along with some of the externals of the church because they were working for reformation. Then there were other people who had a different sense of conscience who, who would not agree to become pastors of the church. Many of those people became university professors at Oxford and Cambridge. And you will see, uh, with the development of the Puritan movement, the Puritan movement essentially comes from Cambridge University because there were, there were several professors who, because they could go, they could, they could believe uh, Protestant doctrine, they could teach this fully orbed, uh, more fully orbed Reformation there, and they could essentially preach, even in chapels that they had there, but they didn't have to do the things that were contrary to their conscience, like worship in the, in the, in the way that Elizabeth had established, administer the sacrament to people kneeling, they didn't have to deal with the authority structure. So they would go into the universities and be subversive, <laughs> which seems to be what universities are for. Uh, now, they, 
they rejected the hierarchical government and they believed generally, these Puritans did, in what you kind of would consider a republic in the church. Uh, it, was a, it was bottom up. It was not independent. It wasn't Baptist government. It was bottom up where you would have uh, the church. It was essentially what we call Presbyterian now, but in various different forms because it hadn't all been hammered out then. You would have elders in the church, and then above the elders there would be a, a group of elders who would constitute a presbytery, but everything was from the, from the bottom up. You didn't impose ministers on people and that kind of thing. And they also rejected the basic Anglican view of worship. The 39 articles, there was, there was an article that really chapped them. It was Article 20, and it reads this way. The church has the power to decree rites or ceremonies. That means that the church could simply establish ways of worship. We'll just, okay, we're going to do it this way. That's how it's going to be. Don't even consult this. Irrelevant. As long as it's not expressly forbidden here, we can do it. The Puritan movement said that's wrong. If it's not commanded for us in the Bible, we shouldn't be doing it in the worship of God because God is the one who decides... God's God. He's the one who decides how we approach Him in salvation. He should be the one who decides how we approach Him in worship. Jesus Christ is the King of the Church and not this monarch, and He should be the one who decides how the Church is governed and not someone over here. So, fundamentally, everything a Bible conviction. God's the one being worshipped, he'll tell us how. Jesus Christ is the king, it's from him that the church gets its authority and, and, and its governmental structure. But most of these people were willing to work in some degree within the church and were wanting to reform the English church. And this is our, this is our last little bit, so I know it's stretching long here, so uh, we're going to finish up the reign of Elizabeth with a couple of important movements that are important to us as Baptists, because we don't really believe this. I mean, this is not, we're not coming from a point of saying one nation, one church. We're not coming from a point of saying everybody, you can't have one church. Like, like we're, we're, we're right, and, and well, of course we think we're right, but, uh, <laughs> if, but if you do it differently, we should kill you. We don't think that. We don't think anything should happen to you. It's freedom is essentially what we, what we believe in, and, and, and more than toleration, because toleration even implies a kind of, uh, that the state has a say, and it's tolerating what you're doing. We don't even believe that. We believe that the state doesn't have a say. God has a say, and if you do it wrong, you'll answer to him, and not to President Bush or Tom Ridge or John Ashcroft. We don't believe that. Fundamental objection to that whole concept. And there were people in England who were developing this mindset. Partly it was an influence of the Anabaptist movement on the continent, and partly it was homegrown. And there are two important names. One is a guy named Robert Brown, and he started a movement called the Brownists. Robert Brown said, check this out, think of how radical this is, the church should be a self-governing local organization made up of people who believe in Christ. Now you're thinking, and? That was, that was revolutionary. That was pretty radical. It was extremely radical. He preached without a license, which was probably his biggest mistake, <laughs> and he openly attacked the government and worship of the church in public. That was one thing that a lot of the Puritans at this time were not doing because they were still trying to work from within, so they were trying to have, they were trying to keep things, trying not to provoke Elizabeth. 
work from within, make change. Brown said, forget that. Forget it. God, uh, I believe the title of his book is very funny. Reformation without tarrying for any. (laughs) Reformation without waiting for anyone. We're not going to wait for the Church of England to come to its senses and say, oh, you're actually, you're right. No, we're just going to obey God and the Bible. We're going to do what's right. We have self-governing local churches made up of believers. And he gathered a congregation in 1580. And in 1581, he and his congregation went to Holland. (laughs) Because uh, they were after them. He published a series of treatises, the Reformation Without Tearing for Any, in Holland, because Holland is a crazy liberal place and they'll publish anything. (laughs) And, uh, And he sent them back to England. I want you to, let me tell you how seriously Elizabeth took this. Would you like to know what the punishment was for possessing Robert Brown's track? (laughs) There we are again. That's right. Dead. Just for possessing a book that said we should run the church the way God says, we should have self-governing local, I mean, all the things we do. For possessing a book that said that. Not even doing it. Just having that book. You could be punished with death. In fact, uh, it wasn't just possessing that book, but of course, being Robert Brown, or any of his followers, could be punishable by death too. Because it was considered a kind of sedition. Treason. Because remember, the church and the state are like this. Religion and politics are intertwined. So if you strike at the roots of the state church you are essentially saying, overturn the monarchy. That's how they heard it in their mind. Overturn civil authority. Destroy all... uh, Chaos. Chaos is what you're advocating. Civil unrest. Rebellion. Uh, uh, You're a madman. You, You must be stopped for advocating these things. Then there was a disciple, if you will, of Robert Brown, a guy by the name of Henry... Barrow, and not surprisingly, his followers were called the Barrowists, or Barrowism. Now, he made some of the doctrines a little more explicit about what he believed. He, he gave a backbone to it. Robert Brown said, look, we, we should just do what the Bible says. We, sh- we shouldn't wait for the English authorities to come to their senses. Henry Barrow went one step further. He said, you know what? He said... The Church of England is corrupt. It's so tainted with Catholicism that I question whether its ministry is even valid. That's what he said. In fact, he said the ordination of the English Church, no good. The sacraments of the English Church, no good. The baptism of the English Church, no good. Now you're threatening people. Now you're threatening them. Can we refer back to dead now? Uh, Shortly. He said, a church structure should support itself through voluntary contributions and not taxation, which is how the English, they called it a tithe, but it wasn't what what, what we talk about, it was a tax on everybody to support your local parish church. It didn't matter. I mean, you could not show up for worship. You you could be a complete uh, infidel. You were still going to pay that tax. He said, you shouldn't support the church that way. You should support it with voluntary contributions. He said, he said you should uh, 
You shouldn't have a book, a prayer book, that you read the prayers out of every week. People should just pray spontaneously in worship to God. He said the entire liturgy was false. You should have a Bible-oriented worship service. And, he said, the only way you were going to get these things was to have a new church that was outside, completely outside the control of the state. Every congregation would have complete authority to govern itself as an independent religious body. The clergy would be elected by the people and not appointed by bishops. And the authority of the congregation would be placed in the, in the elected pastors and elders. Well, 6 April 1593, Henry Barrow, after being captured and tried, is hung. But the doctrines of the Brownists and the Barrowists would... They were eleven. They were eleven in the English, amongst the English people, and in English nonconformity, in English Protestantism, and even amongst the Puritans. And so, as we continue next week, uh, picking up with the reign of James the uh, First, we're going to see just how uh, influential Barrow and Brown ended up being. So, thank you for your patience. Uh, I hope it was interesting. And that's all for this week. And there's not a test at all. <laughs> <laughs> Do anything like that. Okay, turn off.